0: Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and powerful. Lord, in that it is living and powerful, it's powerful to change us. And Lord, we thank you for the transformation that has already occurred in our lives because of the living word, because of Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, as we study these scriptures father we pray for your wisdom we pray for the holy spirit to open our understanding to these things lord we want to know more of you and understand more of your word and your wonderful amazing plan lord just bless this time as we study we pray give us ears that will hear and hearts that are ready to receive lord we ask these things in jesus name amen we are studying through the bible the whole Bible, from Genesis through to Revelation. Last week we looked at the first three chapters of the Bible. This morning we're going to be looking at the uh, next section, which is going to take us through up to the end of chapter 11. So we've looked at the creation the Garden of Eden, the Fall of Man, huge subjects on their own Then we could sort of spend so much longer on those things and I encourage you to dig into these things more yourself. Don't just be content to take what we go through on a Sunday morning um, but use this as a springboard for your own study. We had a great time on Thursday night as we were talking back over some of these things. Uh, every Thursday we're going to be going back over what we cover on a Sunday morning, looking at things in more depth, getting some other ideas in the things that maybe that I didn't say or some different viewpoints and that's helpful as well. Um, so if you're able to come Thursdays then that's what we're going to be doing there but this morning what we're going to be looking at is obviously the account of Cain and Abel very familiar um, but we'll uh, address that Um, the generations of Adam chapter 5 a list of names one of those bits if you're reading through the Bible typically you get to chapter 5 and you kind of skim read it because it's like just a list of names but it's more than just a list as we'll see and then through from chapter 6 through 9 we've got the flood of Noah um, a lot of controversy about the flood of Noah don't know why really because we're told that there was once a flood on Mars and there's no water on Mars and yet we're told that a flood on earth a global flood can happen so anyway uh, we'll look at that in a moment and then to conclude we're looking from chapter 10 through 11 the table of nations uh, as it's called an amazing portion of scripture so just to, to bring us up to speed the story so far God has created all things everything is very good Lucifer, the anointed cherub, who'd been given the highest position. He had access to the throne. He was beautiful when God had created him. Dazzling. This light bearer. But, it's interesting that we find lots of kind of these references to scripture. Esther 6-6, you're aware of the situation with Esther and with this man, Haman, who hates Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. And a relative of Esther, and the, you know the account, I'm sure. And one night the king wakes up and he's reading through the journals, the historical records, and he notices that Mordecai had once discovered a plot to overthrow him. And so the king's sitting there and thinks, I wonder what was, ha- what we did to, to say thank you to Mordecai. And so he decides that he's gonna ask somebody for advice. It just happens to be that Haman has entered the, the palace early that morning. The king is saying, what can I do to honor this Individual Now, Haman doesn't know who it is. And his response is, the scripture we've got there, to whom would the king delight to do honour more than to myself? So, Haman's view is, well, surely the king wants to honour me. See, he's puffed up with pride. And I think that's exactly what we see going on in the garden. That Satan sees this wonderful work of creation going on. Well, who's that for? Surely, the anointed cherub, isn't it? And then... God creates man in his own image and given charge over all of creation. And then Satan seemingly is furious from the accounts we have in Scripture. And then he sets about trying to destroy man just as Haman sets about trying to destroy Mordecai. An incredible parallel that we have in Scripture. God in his mercy promises a saviour, a kinsman redeemer, somebody of the same family of Adam. So that's where we've got to. What we're going to be looking then is that the, Satan now, after we've got through all of that, is going to launch a full scale attack on mankind. We're going to see the first murder. You see, if Satan can stop this promised seed of the woman coming, well then he's won. He's got the earth which he wanted. He's got all of the beauty of God's creation that he would have dominion over and no challenge. And then we're going to see Satan launch a second assault. We see wickedness of man go off the scale. God then intervenes in an amazing way to save humanity. But then Satan launches a third assault. And this is a three-pronged attack. And God regains the initiative. Of course, God never loses the initiative. But in terms of the way that this is revealed to us in Scripture, God then unveils his amazing recovery plan, what he's going to do to remedy this situation. If we just look at a a span of the ages from the creation through into eternity, we see that we're looking now at this portion of history. Genesis covers an amazing amount of historical uh, time. Uh, and This is the period that we're in this morning. Now just to lead us into this morning, last time we looked in Genesis 3, verse 20 and 21, that God there, we see Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then we're told, and unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Now the only way you're going to be able to get skins and clothe them is those animals that once had. inhabited inhabited those skins are killed it's the first sacrifice blood had to be shed the the, the blood of the animals was shed so that the blood of Adam and Eve wouldn't have to be it was atonement it was a temporary covering for their sin looking forward to ultimately when Jesus would pay the full price on the cross Leviticus 17.11 says "The, the life of the flesh is in the blood therefore if blood is shed life would cease and so on that's the whole idea behind these things So God instigates this first sacrifice. Now, we're told that, um, and this is the way it seems to be from looking at the various uh, commentaries, the various Hebrew translations, uh, that God places two cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That's certainly clear from the text, to guard the way. But the implication is that God dwelt there, between the cherubim. The Jerusalem Targum 1 translation says, God dwelt east of the Garden of Eden, between the cherubim. As a tongue of fire, to keep open the way to the tree of life. See, God didn't want Adam and Eve getting back to the tree of life. If they'd have eaten from the tree of life in their sinful state, well, they would have lived forever in that state. And God wasn't going to allow that. That's why God guards the way. But it's interesting that the implication is that God then dwells between the cherubim. In Exodus 25, verse 22, as Moses is being given instruction for the tabernacle, we read about the, the mercy seat, and so the, the Ark of the Covenant. It says, and there I will meet with thee, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. And that's a picture of a representation of the Ark of the Covenant with these um, cherubim. Uh, there's lots of different ideas of what it may have looked like. But it's just interesting that when we get to the time of Exodus and we'll look at that and uh, the building of the tabernacle and all of those things, we have these two cherubim again and God dwelling in the midst. And uh, it certainly seems as if Adam would have had opportunity to go back to that place. Not to go into the garden, but go to that place and maybe himself offer up sacrifices, realizing that that shed blood of those animals that he would now sacrifice uh, was to cover his own sin. So, leading into chapter 4... We read, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, "I've gotten a man from the Lord." And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, some suggestion here that Eve actually had twins, um, because we're told that she bears once and then she gives birth twice. That's you know, the the idea is that that uh, here that she's actually giving uh, or she, she's birthing twins. So. Um, Different commentaries have different views. That seems to be a a view that some uh, uh, put forward. Uh, Regardless of the situation, Cain nevertheless is the elder of the two. Uh, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now again, they understand already the need for sacrifice, bringing something to the Lord. But we're told that Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fact thereof and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering but unto Cain to his offering he had not respect and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell you see what we see here is that Abel doesn't bring of the firstlings of his flock because he's a shepherd but because he understands the whole idea of blood sacrifice that obviously his father Adam had passed down to him Cain decides he's going to bring the work of his own hands his own efforts and we see in that, of course, religion. Trying to get right with God by something that we've done. The question, of course, is how did they know that the offering had been accepted? And it seems to be a lot of commentaries uh, and commentators have the view that God responded by uh, burning up uh, Abel's sacrifice. Uh, we certainly see that happen. Moses and Aaron have a similar situation in Leviticus 9. But Gideon, Samson's parents, Elijah, David, Solomon, all have situations where the Lord received their offering by fire and that seems to be how they know how Cain realized that his offering was rejected but Abel's was accepted it's interesting as well that in hebrews 11:4 we're told by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous god testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaks incredible that this man Abel though yes he's a shepherd But it wasn't the work of his hands. He understood by faith that the shed blood of this innocent substitute was going to atone for his own sin. No doubt, he listened to his father. He knew that the shedding of blood was required. And that that shedding of blood would atone for sin until the seed would come. The one that had been promised to his mum and dad. To Adam and Eve. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Almost all things are by the Lord purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This is the way that God has chosen it to be. And of course, on the cross, Jesus pays for the sin of the world by the shedding of his own blood. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall not you be accepted. And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. See, the Lord aware of what's going on inside Cain's heart at this point. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over it. The interesting thing is, of course, that Cain had the position of the firstborn. He already had the, that ride, as it were. He should have been content with what he had. But he becomes jealous of the position. You see, this theme of jealousy of a position comes all the way through Scripture. And it starts with Satan, of course. He doesn't take well to being upstaged, as it were. His response... In a sense, what he's saying is, well, you want shed blood, God, I'll give you shed blood. And that's exactly what he does. He goes out and kills his brother. Cain talked with Abel's brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel's brother and slew him. The Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course, how can you hide something from a God that sees everything? And he said... What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And then a curse is then put upon Cain and so on, and he's told that he'll be a fugitive from then on. It's interesting that we have this reference to the brother's blood crying. Um, we have this reference in Hebrews 12:24, 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You see, even though Abel had died, That which he'd done has spoken through, down through the ages of his faith, of his trust, of his knee, of the need for this sacrificial atonement. And of course Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Both Cain and Abel came from the same parents. They were both fallen. Neither had an advantage. Cain couldn't say, well I had a troubled childhood. They were both of course outside of Eden. And it's interesting that we see then this different basis that Abel relies on the completed work of Christ effectively, the blood of an innocent sacrifice, whereas Cain brings of his own works. Of course that death was required in Genesis 22, and we'll look at that next time, but we see how God gives this dramatic Performance in a sense is almost like a, a theatrical production looking forward to the main event with Abraham and Isaac and so on. How God Himself would provide that sacrifice. We see a number of types with Abel being a model of jesus christ we said last time in fact the first three chapters there's over a dozen ways looking at bible study that we came up with that we could see in those first three chapters that we see different types of jesus christ different things that point to him well abel himself is a type of jesus in the fact that he was a shepherd jesus being the good shepherd abel gave an offering jesus uh we're told in john's gospel john chapter 10 came to give himself to, as an offering Abel was hated by his brother, the same obviously with Jesus, hated by his brethren. Abel was slain as an enemy, and of course we know that to be true of Jesus. We're told that Abel's blood cries out, and as we just mentioned, so does Jesus's. Abel took of the first things of the flock, and Peter makes reference to that, applies to Jesus. And then, obviously this witness, um, this acceptance that God was pleased. And we see that with Jesus. I mean, God himself confirms that he's pleased. The centurion at the cross makes mention, this must have been the Son of God. Even Satan, Judas, so on. we see that, that there's this acknowledgement that Jesus is God and that God the Father was pleased with this offering. So as we move on, we start to look at Cain and his family and so on. And I'm not going to read all the scriptures here because we haven't got time this morning. But verse 17, 18, we start to get a little bit of the family history of Cain. We find that uh, he has a wife and they go and build a city and so on. Um, Cain, his name means begotten or possession. Of course, his parents would have given him that. That makes sense. Enoch, his son, means teaching. That's not the Enoch we tend to be familiar with. We'll look at that in a moment in Genesis chapter 5. This is Cain's son. So we start off with this possession, begotten teaching, but then Irad, his son, his name is fugitive. And then Mehujael, smitten by God. Mehthusael, who is of God. And then Lamech, despairing, lament. You see this downward spiral in a life that's chosen to go its own way, starting off in a great place, being a possession, being begotten, but effectively rejecting the teaching. Becoming a fugitive, smitten of God, and then just crying out in despair against God. And it's just a sad state of affairs when people in this world choose to reject God for their own wisdom. The road taken when self is king will only lead to despair. As I said before, there's two thrones that we need to understand. The throne of David and the throne of our own heart. If we understand the throne of our own heart, we'll start to understand that we need to surrender that to Jesus. Because when we're in charge, things go wrong. That uh, downward spiral continues, uh, that Lamech we just mentioned, he ends up taking two wives, that wasn't God's intention or God's plan. He ends up killing somebody as well and tries to justify it. We see an increase in technology in music and all these things as we go through uh, the latter part of chapter uh, 4 of Genesis. And so on, and then when we get to Jude, Jude in the New Testament says, uh, speaking of uh, those even in our day, he says that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. To whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? what does Jude mean by the way of Cain? Well, when you look at Cain 's future from this point, what we see is a rejection of God's word, and again, the word passed down through Adam regarding sacrifice and so on, this trend towards urban rather than rural life, the bright lights of the city. this as is an aside, you know people do get attracted by the bright lights of the city. And there's nothing inherently wrong in that, as long as you have the right city. See, the bright lights of the city that we're looking for is the New Jerusalem. And that should be our focus. We see the building of man's kingdom. A growing tolerance of sexual excess. A rise in entertainment. A distractions, if you like, things just keep us, that keep us from God. Increasing technology, so we don't have a need for God and a justification of violence at the ground of our rights. All of those things we see going on in Cain and his family subsequently. That seems to be the way, the path of Cain, that people even today now are going down this road rejecting God and so on. We're then told and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said, has appointed me another seed. That's what the name Seth means, it means appointed, instead of Abel who came slew. I wonder if Eve and Adam thought, I wonder if this one is the seed. They didn't know. They hadn't seen the whole plan. And to Seth and to him also there was born a son and he called his name Enos. And then we saw then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I don't think he's saying that men began to seek the Lord. I don't think that's what it's implying. And it's interesting when we look at some of the other translations and so on the Hebrew of this it implies that they were calling on the name of the Lord as if in mockery. One of the Hebrew translation says it that then men began to profane the name of the Lord. The Targum of Onculus, another uh, ancient uh, document we have, it says, desisted from praying in the name. Targum of Jonathan says, surnamed their idols in the name. So we seem to be getting into apostasy and idolatry at this particular point mamanides in the 12th century in his commentary ascribes the origin of idolatry to the days of enosh and it seems to be at this point it comes in and with that we jump into chapter five now are there hidden messages in the bible last time we mentioned about the equidistant letter sequences the codes we can see in the bible we find that they're there and particularly the trees that are mentioned through the rest of the Bible concealed at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 of Genesis. Every tree in the Bible hidden under the text. You couldn't do that if you tried. It's so complex to try and get all of that in there and make the surface text make sense. And yet it's there. So we do see those kind of messages there. But Proverbs 25, two says, Is the glory of God to conceal a thing? But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Let me ask you, A question, a riddle if you like. Who's the oldest man in the Bible? You should hope we know the answer to that. It's Methuselah. He lived for 969 years. And yet he died before his father. How can that be? Well, many people forget that his father was Enoch. In Enoch, at the age 65, something happened to him. We're told then he walked with God a further 300 years. And then he was not because God took him. Enoch was raptured. He was taken alive from earth to heaven so he never actually experienced death now it's interesting, Methuselah his name comes from a couple of Hebrew words uh, the the roots uh, of the first part is muth which is a root meaning death and then "shalak," which means to bring or to send forth so literally his name means his death shall bring now what's so interesting about this is that we're told that when Methuselah is 187 he has his son Lamech who when he's 182 has his son Noah And in the 600th year of Noah's life comes the flood. And so you see that Methuselah's name was a prophecy in advance that when he died, it will come. And what came? The flood. It was a testimony to God's faithfulness. He's the oldest man in the Bible recorded. And it's just a testimony of God's faithfulness, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The year Methuselah died was the year the flood came. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, we're given this list of names that are there. Now, we've already mentioned that uh, Methuselah's name has a certain meaning, um, but Adam also, we know, means man. So we find these Hebrew words, because what we have translated there are the English approximations of the Hebrew. Eve, Eve uh, said, for God has appointed me another seed. So this is for Seth, and we just saw that a moment ago. His name means appointed. Enosh, which is interesting because we said this seems to be when this... Um, a rebellion seems to start, means mortal or frail or miserable. Keenan comes from a word which means sorrow. Mahalaleel, well that's a much nicer name, means blessed God effectively. You know, the combination, you're familiar with the L bit, the Elohim, uh, Daniel, God is my judge and so on. Lots of names in scripture have that L component to them. But Mahalalil, his name means the blessed God. Yared, his name means shall come down. An interesting name for a child. I'm sure none of you have actually had that on your baby names list. But Enoch, well, his name means teaching. And we notice again, as we said, that Enoch um, was translated. It's interesting, though, that we have this prophecy recorded in Jude again. This is the first prophecy we have of the second coming. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. An incredible prophecy that Jude wonderfully has recorded for us of the words of Enoch, this prophecy that he's given. You see, Enoch's prophecy tells us that the Lord's coming is sure. We know who's going to accompany the Lord because we're told it's his saints that will come back with him. That We know that the purpose of this is the the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's just wonderful. This incredible prophecy found right back there in chapter 5 of Genesis. Now, just carrying on with the names we said already, Methuselah means his death shall bring again when he died the flood came lamech we still have that in english effectively in the word lamentation or to lament and it just means despairing noah though his name means comfort or rest when he was named his father lamech said that maybe this one will comfort us and so on now when we look at that uh, together we get this long list again methuselah as we said means his death shall bring Adam means man Seth we have as appointed Enosh Morto who would name their child that you know really Canaan means sorrow Mahalalil, good name the blessed God if we were going to have a boy I had suggested that to Joy but she wasn't keen but I think it's a great name Jared or Yared to come down Enoch as we said means teaching Lamech means despairing and Noah comfort or rest now, that's just the names. That's the, the wording and the, the, the understanding of the names in the Hebrew. Now, when we put all of that together, we have this. Man is appointed, mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. This is Genesis chapter 5. And that is a summary of the gospel. And you're not going to convince me that some Jewish rabbis or scribes contrived to hide the Christian gospel in their beloved Torah. And yet it's there. Amazing. As we said before, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And you just see this incredible design in Scripture. Let's move on. Chapter 6 through 9, where it come to the, the flood and all things concerning it. Now, uh, a chap called Edmund Spencer said, there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is a proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is condemnation before investigation. People are very quick to say, oh, that couldn't possibly be, without actually checking the facts. Solomon says it this way. He that answers the matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame to him. Now, sadly, the portion of scripture we're just going to look at briefly now, so many people have ventured their opinion and said, oh, that couldn't have happened. Let's just have a quick look. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that also, uh, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's this portion of scripture that leads us now into this narrative about the flood. Now, on the surface, what we seem to be reading here is that angelic beings leave their first estate, as it were. They desired and taken women, and it implies without their consent. Their offspring seem to be these hybrid beings, part human, part celestial. They were clearly from the text implied of abnormal size. Now that's the view that we, just by looking at the text, but of course that's a bit hard to swallow. So what we find is that there's a classical view that's taught in seminaries and Bible colleges. And this is the view that is held by many within the church today that we're just about to look at now, which is in contrast to what we've just looked at. What they say is that the sons of God represent the descendants of Seth, the Sethite leadership, those of the good line, as it were. The daughters of Adam, well, they're the daughters of Cain. Well, straight away we're reading things into the text that don't appear there, but this is what's proposed. The sin, of course, was a failure to remain separate, that the daughters of Seth or the children of Seth shouldn't have married the daughters of Cain. Well, there's no command in Scripture to suggest that for a start. And, of course, there's no mention really made of the Nephilim, these beings that are the the produce, the giants, as it's translated for us. What they do say is that they were men of great stature in the community. But, again, that doesn't fit the context. Now, this seems to have come about in the 5th century, this idea. There's a chap by the name of Stelius and Julian, the apostate. They used the traditional belief to attack Christianity. You know, just like people do today. Oh, God, you know, you believe God created in six days and they laugh at us, they mock us. Well, in just the same way, they were looking at this account of these angelic beings coming into the earth and producing offspring and they they laughed at it. And so that was their way of attacking it. And another man, Julius Africanus, resorted to the Sethite theory as a more comfortable ground. You know, when people attack us on, do you believe that? It's very easy to say, well, maybe that's not quite true. You know, a lot of people, even within the church, will adopt this, you know, well, maybe that didn't really happen, or maybe it was just to illustrate a point so that they don't seem so silly in the world. Well, you know what? We need not worry too much about what the world thinks because the world frequently gets it wrong. Cyril of Alexandria used this again um, to challenge and to laugh about the orthodox position that exists. Augustine embraced the sethite theory and of course if you know anything about history you'll know that that which augustine embraced by and large was embraced by the catholic church which by and large was embraced by the anglican church which then of course gets picked up by the Baptists and the Methodists and all the other denominations that all splinter off so that's why this view is so well taught as it were prevailed of course into the middle ages and it's still commonly taught today but if we go back and just look at the details in the text first of all we're told they took them wives there's women, there's women of the earth it's quite clear that they're, they're talking about that but the sons of God, the phrase in the Hebrew is is ha Elohim it's used always to identify a direct creation of God it's not talking about the, the sons of uh, Seth there's no suggestion of that at all It's interesting, actually, that we find this use of angels in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1. It's also used that phrase in the New Testament of believers. In 1 John, chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called, what? The sons of God. A direct creation of God. Because when we become believers, that's what we become, a direct creation of God. We're born again. This term is very consistent through the Bible, always in reference to direct creation. But in the context here, it can't be really anything other than angelic beings. The uh, daughters of uh, Adam, because well, that's the, the Hebrew, the banoth, Adam, is the, the Hebrew there, uh, daughters of men. It's just talking about the, the descendants of Adam, the, the women of the earth. And then we told that they were Nephilim, that's the, the Hebrew word, in the earth in those days. And also after that, now we have these two words, there's Nephilim, and also then we have mighty men, this, their offspring that we're told about. Now, Nephilim comes from the, the Hebrew verb to the fallen ones. Nephal is to be cast away, cast down, the desert, so on. That's the implication here. And then uh, Hagibarim, these mighty ones. And the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, It's translated there as gigantes, which is where we get our word giants from. And that's why the word giants appears in the text and so on, because it comes from that Greek translation. It comes from gigas also, That's the word means earth-born. All of that implies, as the text implies, that we have something very strange going on here. But what's also incredible is that also after that we're told, It wasn't just before the flood, but after the flood. Now this, of course, is part of Satan's strategy to wipe out the seed, to remove any possibility of the seed of the woman coming. Their offspring... In the uh, Old Testament, again, the Hebrew are referred to as this Rephaim. And it's a word that occurs a number of times in scriptures. And of course we're familiar as we go through the Old Testament that we find these tribes of giants in the land. These aren't men of great stature. These are people that are physically large giants as we would understand the term. In Abraham's time we find them. They existed up to the time of Moses when they go to search out the land. Why is it they didn't want to go in? Was it because there was men of great stature? No, because there were people tall. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Actually gives us great detail about that. Joshua also, second Samuel Second Chronicles, lots of detail about these. Goliath, of course we 're very familiar with, and his brothers. Just a couple of highlights for you. The iron bedstead of Og the Amorite, the king of Bashan, was 15.4 feet long, recording Deuteronomy for us. Goliath was from a family of giants more than 10 feet tall. We're told that he wore this breastplate of mail, weighing 5,000 shekels, which, to you and I, is 100, roughly 126 pounds or 57 kilograms. This spear was like a weaver's beam. This wasn't just some man of great stature. This was a giant being. That's what the text tells us. Now, if you have a problem with what the Bible says, that's different. But don't say the Bible doesn't say it. Interestingly enough, if we look at, oh, so just one other there, Beniah, one of uh, David's uh, soldiers, slew an Egyptian who was eight and a half feet tall. It's recorded in First Chronicles 11.23. Now Josephus says, this is in his, who was recognized as a great historian by the Roman authorities at the time. Many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despised of all that was good on account of their own strength. These men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. You know, I believe that all of the Greek mythology that we have regarding giants stems from these things another of Josephus' quotes uh, Antiquities of the Jews book 5 he says uh, there was till then the race of giants or was left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing the bones of these men are still shown to this day we could spend a long time talking about the evidence we have of these bones even to this day that's just a door that's up at the british museum and of course we're told that it was just a big ornate door because kings like big things but really there's a book written about the lost cities of bashan northern israel and the ceilings of those places were way way bigger than our standard ceilings would be the doors were way bigger the conclusion is that whoever lived in these dwellings were of much, much greater size than we have today. If we look at it, we can see that's where most of us would be. That's about Gerard's height, I think, roughly. Goliath, a little bit tall, you can see. Og, King of Bashan, oh sorry, this, this will be Og here. And you can see if the children of Israel go into the promised land and they start seeing people like that, why they come around and say, we, we don't want to go in there, thank you. But what faith of people like Joshua and Caleb to say, well the Lord will give us victory. And ultimately, the Lord did give them victory. This is confirmed, by the way, in the New Testament. In Jude, in First Peter, second Peter, it actually talks specifically about these things. So this isn't just a, a fringe Old Testament thing. The Bible makes this very, very clear. This was a plan of Satan. See, when we really understand the reason for the battles in the Old Testament, we have no problem reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New, because people love to try and tell us there's a difference, don't they? See, both actually reveal a God of love and mercy and this is why the inhabitants of Canaan had to be destroyed you see we're not dealing with regular men and women and children we're dealing with satanic offspring whose intention was to wipe out the seed to make it impossible for Jesus to come so by God bringing the flood and then afterwards the battles in Canaan and so on it was all an act of his grace most Christians, of course, are ignorant of that because they don't read their Bibles. I know a minister who proudly talks to himself as a New Testament Christian. I think that's so sad. Because when you look at what we have in the Old Testament, it makes so much sense of the whole of God's plan. Let's move on. Genesis 6.3, we read there that the days for man are going to be 120 years. Now, some people think that God is saying that we're going to live to 120 no, God was saying, I'm going to give you 120 years, and then judgment's going to come. That's all that verse is telling us. We're also taught about Noah. We're told he's perfect in his generations. Now, we should be familiar with uh, what we're told in uh, Psalm 14 and Romans 3, that there's none righteous, no not one. So Noah's not perfect. So what is this telling us? Well, firstly, a lot of the modern translations really make a mess of this the Living Bible says he was the only truly righteous man living on earth at that time that's not what the text is saying ESV says Noah was a righteous man blameless in his time that's not what the text is saying Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation that's the NASB Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time the NIV the message Noah was a good man full of integrity in his community that's not what it's saying New century version, Noah's a good man, the most innocent man of his time. And the good news, Noah had no faults. So probably the worst of all of them, isn't it? And was the only good man of his time. No, no. What this is telling us is that Noah was without blemish, sound, healthy, without spot, unimpaired. Or to you and I, it's not talking about his moral standing, but his physical state. He was genetically pure. He hadn't been contaminated by the offspring of these fallen angels by this angelic um, attack satanic attack on planet earth and we're told that this man Noah and his family were all that was left and that's why God sent the flood to save Noah to preserve this line this seed all the way down to the Messiah another interesting thing we're told in Hebrews 11 7 by faith Noah being warned of things not yet seen what hadn't been seen before rain we saw last time there was a mist went up from the ground that watered the ground the the flood is the first time rain appears how hard would it be witnessing to your friends and your your peers if you said it's going to rain there's going to be a flood and they said rain? what's that? but that's why Noah is credited in his hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as being somebody with great faith and is accounted to him as his righteousness so the flood that is not Noah's Ark. I love the children's story books. They're great, but they don't help us sometimes. Because people have this lovely little children's view of what Noah's Ark will look like. And normally you see a giraffe's head poking out the top. This is a little bit more like what the Ark would have been like. The Ark was massive. If we look at it in terms of the, the dimensions, we're talking about somewhere about 450 feet by 75 feet and by 45 feet. Okay, That's if uh, you measure a cubit uh, as 18 inches from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the finger. That's a cubit measurement. Uh, you could have effectively, if we were to put this into railroad cars um, in America, you see those cattle trucks and things that go along the, the railways, uh, you get somewhere in the region of about 125,000 sheep uh, in something the size of the ark, as the dimensions given in the Bible. People love to say, you couldn't fit all those animals on the ark? And you say, how big was the ark? And, oh, I don't know, but you couldn't fit them all on there. If, of course, the cubit was 25 inches, which some commentators feel, and certainly that's a um, reasonable assumption, you'd actually get 340,000 sheep in a a vessel the size of the ark. This was a big ship. If you look, actually, of all the ships that have been built, it's the largest wooden ship ever built. Okay, You've got the Titanic there. In fact, up, up until the time of the Titanic, nothing larger had existed. Noah's Ark was the largest wooden vessel. And actually, nowadays people have uh, looked into these things in detail and they've agreed that it's about as large as you could make a wooden vessel. Wasn't that amazing? The other thing about the Ark was it was very, very stable. The dimensions that we have recorded in Scripture would mean it was superbly buoyant that even in stormy seas, it wouldn't capsize because of the nature of it, the way that it was constructed. The center of gravity and its buoyancy would always set it back upright again. These things are just incredible that we have recorded. And yet people are quick to say it couldn't have happened, it couldn't have taken place. There was a man in uh, Holland that decided he was going to build himself a replica of the ark. This is a half-size replica of the ark. Just to give you some idea and again the whole thought that we wouldn't have been able to fit everything on there is nonsense for a start you wouldn't need to take the largest of everything if you're going to take your elephants and your dinosaurs and so on you you don't take the big ones for a start the big ones the older ones would be older and therefore closer to death you take the younger ones the fitter ones as long as you get a pink one and a blue one that was all that was important it's incredible where Exercise. This gentleman wanted to try and float this along the Thames at the time of the Olympics, but was uh, apparently denied permission for some reason. Don't know why. But you can see uh, the scale of the ark, just an incredible vessel. Genesis 7 verse 1, and the Lord said to Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Now this is a comment on his morality and his standing before God. That he had this faith, this trust in God, that he was prepared to take this step of faith and for this long period of time to be out there building the ark, getting it ready. No doubt being mocked by everybody standing around him, never having seen rain. And no doubt Noah was building this probably slightly on higher ground. First Thessalonians 10, we're told that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus, of course, is our ark. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ark, of course, is a type of Christ. All who enter in by faith will be saved from the wrath of God. No one wasn't left on the earth to endure the flood. He was taken out prior. God calls us to be perfect in our generation also. To be uncontaminated and we're told in genesis 18 uh abraham there the situation with sodom and gomorrah and so on that that far be it from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked and that the righteous should be treated as the wicked that be far from thee shall not the judge of all the earth do right? so clearly god is a just god and he won't judge the just with the wicked Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, we just uh, have this reference to clean beasts and unclean. Of course, the question there could be asked about how did no one know what was clean and unclean? This seems to have been passed down from Eden. There's a load of things that were founded in Eden that seem to have come through. The atonement through the shedding of blood we've mentioned. Again, this whole idea of the seed of the woman, the virgin birth. Marriage itself, clothing, covering comes from there. The clean and unclean laws, ceremonial laws. The Sabbath laws originate in Eden. Man, to be saved by grace, the origin of sin and need for a saviour. All of those things have their foundation in Eden. And then we're told it came to pass after seven days that the waters of Noah's now in the ark. The Lord shuts the door, but the flood waters were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights now within that small portion of text is concealed a whole number of things that we don't really have a full understanding of but there are people that have really tried to understand what took place at this time now all I'm going to share with you is conjecture but I'm going to share it with you because I think it's so interesting that at least you should be aware of it and I hope for you that it prompts a little bit of study as well you see, there's a whole load of unsolved mysteries. What happened to the dinosaurs? Why did so many mammoths freeze? By the way, do you know how cold it would have to be to freeze a mammoth? With food still in its stomach and so on. They reckon somewhere around about 300 below zero. And they have actually found these frozen mammoths all around... The Arctic Ocean, or the edge of the Arctic Ocean, and the northern Siberia, and Alaska, and all sorts of other places—loads and loads. There's actually there you can see. This goes back to about 1920, Siberia. They were trading in the uh, the tusks of these mammoths. So many. Why is there a petrified forest? That doesn't mean frightened. It means made into coal. Effectively, you know, petrified forest near the South Pole, discovered by Admiral Byrd. Did you realize there were trees and vegetation once at the South Pole? Land animals fossilized in locations below sea level. Why are the fossilized sea creatures found at the top of mountains. How did the Grand Canyon form, etc.? You know, was it a lot of time and a little bit of water, as we're told to believe, which is actually strange because the river would actually have to flow uphill, but that's a, the side. Or was it maybe an awful lot of water and a very little bit of time? how do we account for the mid-oceanic mountain ranges are you aware that in the middle of the, the Atlantic Ocean we've got this ridge that goes really it's like a seam, it's a tear in the earth's crust and it's, it kind of the, the, the ground comes up at this point what caused the recent submarine canyons those canyons deep down that they've realised have been recently formed because of the things that are growing there, living there, they're not old What caused the coal and the oil fields anyway? What caused all the fossil graveyards? You know, I come from Dealing Kent, living right on the edge of the White Cliffs. Are we to believe that all those creatures moved to Dover to die? I mean, I have been to Dover, and I can understand, but that's not what it's saying. You know, the whole idea, and even here we live, don't we, in an area where we've got all these chalk cliffs. Are we to believe that of all the places in the world, they all happen to come together to one place? Well, you just do an experiment. You get different types of material. You put it in a jar with some water, shake it up, and you'll see they'll all form, they'll all settle in their groupings. We can That's an empirical test that we can do. It seems that something like that happened with the earth. Now, of course, we've got this jigsaw fit of the, the continents. People often talk about this idea that the continents used to be together. Well, certainly the biblical account we mentioned last time implies that originally the earth was one land mass. One... Uh, Commentator and scholar has uh, proposed that the earth once originally was in its beautiful flower shape prior to the time of the flood. Now, conjecture. There's lots of different theories, but just pulling some of these things together, one of the, the greatest books that um, has blessed so many and uh, been a kind of a stepping stone to further study was The Genesis Record by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. Uh, it's kind of his 50th anniversary publications out now. But there's a hydroplate theory by a chap called Walt Brown, which is also very interesting. He covers different aspects. And then there's also other influences involved of what's going on here. A man called Donald Patton, with the colleagues of his, have written a very interesting book, The Biblical Flood and the Ice Epoch, and also the Mars-Earth Wars. Now these things may sound really strange to you if you've never come across them before. So all I'd ask is that you just take this with an open mind and then go and do some diligent study. Because I think what we had going on at this time was that Mars was once on a much closer orbit than it is today. and It was on a close pass-by to Earth that it ruptured the Earth's crust, causing a crack to encircle the Earth. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that this isn't miraculous, because the timing of all of these events had to happen at precisely the right time. But this all seems to answer so many questions. The suggestion is that you'd be able to see at times Mars on the horizon rising 50 times the size of the moon. You know, all the ancient cultures were afraid of Mars. Most of you, if you were to go out and look in the night sky, wouldn't be able to point it out. But the ancient cultures were terrified of Mars. The Greeks used to speak of a a planet, Glacius, that they could see, they'd observed. We don't see it. It doesn't exist. But we do have... An asteroid belt. And it's interesting, where did all the rocks and everything in the asteroid belt come from? Well, one of the suggestions is that this planet, predominantly made up of ice, comes close to close to Earth's orbit, as it were. There's a Roche limit. When a planet comes too close to another, it gets pulled in by the gravity, and it fragments. Chunks of that potentially hit Mars, which is also nearby at the same time, and it's dumping then lots of super cold ice, on the north pole, the south pole, the magnetic poles ancient Chaldean, Sumerian, Assyrian literature and legends talk of two stars that approached the earth the epic of Gilgamesh which you can actually see remnants of in the British Museum up in London blames Mars for the flood isn't that interesting there's a series of events that seem to take place on 108 year cycles studies have been done and they've corroborated this data Now, interestingly, Mars can't retain water, and yet there is evidence of flash floods on Mars on one side only. Planets such as Saturn have ice rings. Where did they come from? Donald Patton, in his book, The Mars Earth Wars, writes, What was the other star that also approached the Earth? Was it glaciers, an icy satellite with a diameter of five to 600 miles? Was it shattered ice coming in from a fragmented glaciers that entered our atmosphere, burned, and recondensed into a hemisphere-wide warm rain? Talmudic evidence points in this direction. These, by the way, Donald Patton and the people he wrote with were no slouches. One was a Harvard professor, one worked for NASA. Another quote says, Ice is found today... 3,000 to 4,000 feet thick below sea level, resting on Antarctic bedrock. This ice is deficient in the oxygen-18 isotope common to ocean water and clouds. Also, the ice is deficient in the um, deuterium form of hydrogen. In other words, it's not indigenous to Earth. It wouldn't naturally form. So where did it come from? So the theory is, just a theory, and Say, go, do study, see what you think, that at the time of the flood, we have Mars coming by, causing this rupture in the crust of the Earth. At the same time, this other ice meter, if you like, or a, um, a comet, large comet, whatever you see it as, starts to come in, dumping uh, ice again on the poles of the Earth. 400 degrees below zero. Now, that would be enough to freeze the mammoths. You see, the sudden and extreme temperature drops that had to have occurred for the mammoths and so on to be frozen, and the bobcats' the camels also Interestingly enough, mammoths ate tropical vegetation at the time of the flood. It would seem to be that the earth was one climate all round. The famous Australian astronomer George Dodwell did a study of the solstice shadows recorded by the ancient uh, and various people mentioned here, but uh, the, the, the ancient festivals and things they have. Um, the uh, uh, Eamon Ra, Egyptian one, Stonehenge etc it appeared to him that something struck the earth about 4,350 years ago you're aware of course that today the earth is spinning at an angle of 23.5 degrees that's why we have our seasons do you know the seasons as we have them didn't occur until after the flood Genesis 8.22 tells us that so it seems that something struck the earth and it caused the earth to wobble and that wobble has been going on ever since The remaining ice, the collapsing water canopy around the earth and the water coming up from within the earth then all contribute to this 40 days of deluge on the earth. Psalm 136, verse 6 says, To him that stretched out the earth above the waters. There was waters under the crust of the earth. And as this rupture occurs in the crust of the earth, so this water, which would have been under pressure, suddenly comes bursting out coming down as rain, forcing rippling effects in the the sides where it's coming up from either side. Seems to be a, a very feasible, good explanation for the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and what uh, we see there. And also explaining how we get this kind of continental drift and so on going on, the tectonic plates all moving. And interestingly enough, if you look around the world, you'll find that mountain ranges all seem to run alongside these Marks or these, this rift going around the earth. If you look at where this rift, there's one here, it's all really part of one big kind of, there's little links around this way, and it comes around um, the South Pacific, sorry, uh, yes, uh, uh, China Seas and everything else. Um, all of those things incredibly seem to link together, and the mountain ranges all seems, or the majority of them seem to run parallel with these things. We read Psalm 104 this morning. Let me just read to you from the Living Bible verse 5 to 9 it says you bound the world together so that it would never fall apart you clothed the earth with floods of water covering up the mountains you spoke and at the sound of your shout the water collected into vast ocean beds the mountains rose and the valleys sank to the levels you decreed and then you set a boundary for the seas so that they would never again cover the earth that seems to be exactly what we have going on as we look at the world not just A Hebrew psalm, a statement of fact. We have, of course, the uh, eruption of Mount St. Helens uh, very recently in the the scale of things. uh, A sedimentary rock laid down in just a matter of hours after that eruption. Now, the question, of course, is, was the, the flood universal? Was it just local? Well, we're told in chapter 7, verses 4 and 23 that every living thing died. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. So that really answers the question, doesn't it? The ark then came to rest on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. And there's this promise again that God would never again flood the earth. Now we could spend a long time we're not going to this morning but talking about the flood traditions from around the world every culture seems to have a flood tradition over 300 different legends of the flood and they all speak about a boat and a man and a family being saved Luke 23, 24-25 he reads strive to enter in at the straight gate for many I say unto you will seek to enter in and should not be able when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, "Lord, Lord, open unto us, and He shall say unto you, and she shall say unto you, I know you not whence you are, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth you know i 'm sure as it started to rain, there was a lot of people desperately trying to clamber up and bang on the door of the ark, but it was too late they 'd made their decision already after the flood, with the thermal blanket now gone. Everything's going to be different. It will be an end of the universal climate that once existed. Last time we spoke about the atmospheric pressure, well, that would be reduced by 50%. There's good evidence of that today. The long lifespans that we see before the flood would suddenly drop off because no longer do we have this protection from the solar radiation that we once had and lots of other changes too, the temperatures for a start. Dinosaurs also would start to die out due to lack of oxygen and food. We mentioned that last time. And then we're told that clean, that should be ME80, I do apologise, clean meat, now given as food as well. After the flood, there's a change in the the rules regarding diet. And we also see then that an ice age begins from a, 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 following these ideas through, that after the flood, as the climate starts to settle, this seems to be one of the changes that have taken place. Okay, let's get back on to to tracking text. That's just an idea, a theory. It's it's one of those ideas that fits the facts. Uh, I find it very compelling, and there's a lot more evidence that we could have gone into this morning. But uh, just to give you a brief overview. Okay, let's uh, have a little sprint to the finish. Verse 4 of chapter 8. The ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, we said before, there are no meaningless details in the Bible in Exodus chapter 12, God switches the Jews' calendar around. What he says is, this month is now going to be your first month. So if you look at a Jewish calendar, what was once their seventh month, in Nissen, Aviv, as we would refer to it, March, April of our time, that suddenly becomes, at the time of the Exodus, their first month. So what was the seventh month, which is what we're looking at in the Genesis calendar, now would effectively be the first month. Why is that significant? Well, because when we look a Passion Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion, we find actually it was on the 17th day of the first month, or in the old calendar, the 17th day of the 7th month, this momentous day when the ark came to rest, signifying new life for all who had been saved aboard the ark. Jesus rose from the dead, signaling new life for all who had put their trust in his protection from God's wrath. Incredible now where did the ark land where did it settle people have been searching for it for an awful long time we're told the mountains of ararat a lot of people search and look on mount ararat which is in turkey but the mountains of ararat actually stretch that's the uh, um, the turkey site typically in there but the mountains of ararat would actually stretch across this region across northern iran and into uh, afghanistan over this side and so on now the mountain ranges are quite tall a lot of them are covered in snow and ice it would be very impossible to search them completely but what we are told and we know of course is that Ararat is north of Babel the plain of Shinar and so on after the flood we're told they travel Genesis eleven two from the east and settle in this region well that would almost seem to discount completely Mount Ararat as being a landing site for the ark so it's more likely to be somewhere in this region that the ark settled and they come down from the ark and they travel across there Ken Ham asked the question how many of you think there were once um, kangaroos in the Middle East a lot of people when they're asked that question they go I'm sure that's not true of course all the animals in the world were once in the Middle East And from there they spread around the world. Peter says, 2 Peter 3, verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter says, Last time water, this time it's going to be fire. Of course we have this wonderful token of a covenant, this bow, rainbow as we refer to it. And of course I'll just draw your attention to Revelation chapter 6 where a rider comes with a bow. A lot of people think that he's getting ready to fire something. No, 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 he's coming with a token of a covenant. Genesis 9 then gives us this account of verse 28. Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So Noah has a very long and healthy life. If we look at the ages of people after the flood, Noah lives a long time, 350 years after the flood. Shem, his son, lives 502 years after the flood. And the incredible thing is, if you look down here, Isaac, Jacob could have gone to see great, 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 great Uncle Shem. I wonder what those stories would have been like as Shem told him about the world before the flood. And they sat and listened. No wonder we have in our cultures or in the, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, legends about these characters, these kind of godlike characters. A lot of the Roman gods, you can trace back to people like Shem jupiter japheth the son of noah they were venerated and you can imagine you can understand why we could spend a lot longer on that this morning but let's move on yes as i said jacob could have known shem for 50 years or so before shem had died it's believed to be around about this time the days of peleg that we have the tower of babel built now We get to chapter 10 and chapter 11 and the table of nations. And just bear with me a moment. Some of you may be familiar with this book by Bill Cooper called After the Flood. If you haven't got a copy of this book, I encourage you to go out and buy a copy of this book. I just want to read a little bit to you. He says, It is commonly thought in this present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless it first can be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. And he goes on and says, This applied particularly to the book of Genesis. There there all was relegated, by modernist scholars at least, to the realms of myth and fiction, with very little of its contents being said to bear any relevance at all for 20th century men, Not even a moral relevance was granted. In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that historically speaking, the book of Genesis was simply not worth the paper it was written on. When I first came across this problem some 30 years ago, I found it most perplexing. On the one hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very Word of God, and on the other, I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms, whose parts had been patched together by a series of later editors. modern scientific man, need have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Now, it simply was not possible for both of these claims to be valid. Only one of them could be right, and I saw it as my duty, to myself at least, to find out which was the true uh, and which was the false. So it was then that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis, and to submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. Either way, I would discover once and for all whether the biblical record was worthy of my trust or not. He says, What I had not expected at the time was that the fact that the task was to engage my attention and engines for more than 25 years, nor had I expected the astonishing degree to which Genesis, particularly the 10th and 11th chapters, were to be vindicated. These chapters are conveniently known as uh, by scholars as the Table of Nations, and the sheer breadth and depth of the historical evidence that was available for this study astonished me. It bore very little relation indeed to what I had been led to expect. But that was not the only surprising thing in store. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names of the individuals, families, peoples, and tribes listed in the Table of Nations were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations of the Middle East. Archaeology should also reveal that those same families and peoples are uh, are listed in Genesis, or not as the case may be, in their correct ethnological, geographical, and linguistical relationships. I allowed for the fact that a good proportion of these names would not appear, either the records that once contained them but long since perished, or the diversity of language and dialect had rendered them unrecognisable. Some would be lost in obscurity. It simply was not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annuals of the ancient Middle East and would have survived to the present day. I therefore would have been content to have found, say, 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement given the sheer antiquity of the Table of Nations itself and the reported sparsity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient times. But when over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory evidence grew past 40% to 50% and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent that modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark. Very wide of the mark indeed. Today... I can say that the names so far vindicated in the Table of Nations make up over 99% of the list, and I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. If you get that book, you'll get a list and a family tree of the kings and queens of this country going all the way back to Noah, been checked out and verified. We have in that list Noah's descendants, Japheth. Interestingly, Japheth's descendants, one of them, Javan, has a son, Tarshish, believed by some scholars to have been the one who originally came to this country. Tarshish in scripture seems to be a reference for the British Isles, a source of tin and so on. If we look at the area geographically where Japheth went and uh, dwelt, that's where you're looking at. Places like Magog, Gomer, Meshech—names uh, you'll be familiar with from other portions of Scripture. Ham, his descendants. Well, we have Cush, um, an interesting character. Mizraim, which is Egypt, and Foot, Libya, Canaan. Then we get, and all these other ones coming off as well. Interestingly, from Mizraim we have the Philistines come from that group, but Canaan are the ones who are cursed. And it seems to be, uh, these are the ones whom these angelic uh, beings seem to target for a very specific reason, which we'll look at next time. They dwelt in this region here, including North Africa, typically some of the Middle East, and also the Chinese are descendants of Ham. And then we have finally Shem, from where we get our word Semitic, and the descendants thereof. And we'll look in more detail next time at the descendants of, uh, of Shem. Because it's of particular interest to us. And they settled very much in the area of the Middle East. Just a couple of interesting facts in closing. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generation in the nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So God says that the nations of the earth were divided. And this is how they were done. By the sons of Noah. We find that there's 70 descendants in that list that we have in Genesis chapter 10. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, we're told there, when the Most High divided to their nations the inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, the children of Israel hadn't yet been born. But God, in his wisdom, decides that they're going to have 70 nations. And amazingly, we find that the 70 are the number of the children of Israel that go down to Egypt with Jacob. So God does indeed divide the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. It's an incredible fact. So, setting us up then for really moving forward now. After the flood, Satan launched a more subtle threefold strategy. This first attempt with the Cain had failed. The flood has failed. Now he's going to try something different. World government to manipulate mankind against the seed. False religion to deceive mankind into following the false seed and then the seek and destroy plan as I call it, which was to annihilate the threat of the real seed. The world government was very abruptly halted at the Tower of Babel. But of course it's being reestablished now as we live in a world where we're looking to reestablish a world government. And that world government, by the way, will take up arms against the seed. False religion. Now this if I may say so, it was a satanic stroke of genius. We read of this character called Nimrod. We're told that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Literally, we find that's a mighty hunter in defiance of the Lord. And some actually reference it even a mighty hunter of men. Who was he hunting? Well, may I suggest it could have been some of those giants that we were talking about? How popular would somebody be if they went out hunting some of these fearsome characters I mean if you were George and you lived in this country and you went out hunting those kind of things and the dinosaurs and so on you can make a real reputation for yourself so we have Noah his son Ham and then Cush and Nimrod we're told that the beginning of the kingdom for Nimrod was uh, Babel Babylon and by the way it seems to be that Cush was the one responsible for the founding of the uh, Tower of Babel. And it is his son, Nimrod, that carries on from that. And doing a little bit of uh, studying to these things, it seems that then the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, but then he went into Assyria and so on. Okay, so this false religion then, it's established at Babylon, at Babel. Cush, as I said, was the one who was responsible for building the tower. Nimrod, after that, then becomes the first world dictator. There's a legend that Nimrod was killed by Shem. Shem being a godly man, seeing the wickedness, seeing these things coming in, it's recorded that Shem was the one who then killed Nimrod. But Nimrod had a wife. And this is incredible. There's a great book by the name of... Um, Um, the Reverend Alexander Hislop called the two Babylons and he comments there if there was one who was more deeply concerned in the tragic death of Nimrod than another it was his wife Semiramis who from an originally humble position had been raised to share the throne of Babylon what in this emergency shall she do? her husband's dead she's about to lose everything shall she quietly forgo the pomp and pride to which she's been raised? no Though the death of her husband has given rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in flight. In life, her husband had been honored a hero. In death, she will have him worshipped as a god. Yes, the woman's promised seed. Zorro Ashton, there's a twist on the whole Genesis 3.15 thing. Because what she does is recognize that the promise is that this seed is going to come off a woman. And she says, I'm the woman. And her husband's dead and she's pregnant at the time. And she says... Well, the baby I'm carrying is my husband reincarnated. And so we get this worship of the mother and the child. Rather than give up a throne, she, Semiramis told the story that her husband Nimrod, though dead, had been brought back to life as her baby son. And so began the worship of mother and child. Both Nimrod supposedly now reincarnated as his son, and Semiramis become worshipped as gods. She being known as the Queen of Heaven still worshipped by the Roman Catholic Church to this day. Her son, who she named Tammuz, was hailed as the promised seed. You start to see how this counterfeit has so much validity when people look at it, because they were expecting these things, and all of a sudden this cloak is put over it. Almost all false religion has come from that point of origin. Thousands of years then, before the birth of the real seed, Jesus Christ, false religions worshipping the mother and child were spreading out all around the world. We could go through, I'm not going to, for time's sake, list them all this morning, but in almost every culture, you'll find these things were were coming up. Uh, Alexander Hislop even talks about in China, when the Catholic missionaries arrived there, they were surprised to find they were already worshipping the mother and child. The Hebrew, matsaroth, The gospel in the stars also gets corrupted at this point as well and then we have things like christmas easter lent lady day the rosary the sign of the cross which actually comes from the T in tammuz worship of relics the doctrine of purgatory an elite priesthood the sacrifice of the mass and so many other things all have their origin in babylon so the third part of this stratagem was this seek and destroy So that's the false religion part the last part was a seek and destroy plan to annihilate the threat of the real seed. So Satan is trying to throw everybody off the scent, but also he wants to try and stop the possibility. And again, these fallen angels come to cohabit with the women. Previously that had embraced the whole world and had led to the flood, but now focuses on the land of Canaan. Why? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at next time. And we're going to see God's divine protection plan for the seed of the woman unveiled let bow our hearts Father we thank you for your word we thank you that it is so rich so deep and Father we don't need to appeal to extra biblical resources or material or understanding because Lord your word tells us everything that we do need to know Father help us just to learn to trust it and Lord as we do help us to be amazed and in awe at your wonderful plan through the ages Lord understanding that it's because of all these things this Incredible plan that you had that the Messiah could come that our Savior could be born so that you could rescue and redeem each one of us and Lord when we read that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world Lord how marvelous was that plan that before the ages you knew all of these things would take place but Lord that eventually you would have a people who would be your people And you would be their God. Lord, we thank you for these things. Bless us as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.